our emphasis in prayer tonight, and since prayer week is praying through suffering. Obviously, praying hurts when you go through suffering. It's not easy to do. I'm reminded of Hannah crying out to God, different kind of suffering, not having a child, being made fun of for years. Remember how she prayed in her suffering. Jacob wrestling against God and fearful of his brother Esau and all the things that he was going through. David and the many psalms that he wrote as he went through myriads of suffering and difficulty and pain. I want to read the text tonight and look at Jesus and how he can help us to gain insight when we suffer, how we should pray about it, how we should pray through it. Hebrews 5, beginning in verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Mac- Kilzadek. How do I pray through suffering? I don't know if you've ever had to do that. I'm sure you have to one degree or another. What do you actually say? Sometimes it's hard to even know what you should say. Here are some borrowed words, and I, I don't know if you take advantage of that, but I do. Um, I read a lot of books on people's prayers. I personally enjoy the Puritans quite a bit. Jeremy Taylor, who was a Puritan, said this, Lord, do turn me all into love, all my love into obedience, and let my obedience be without interruption. That was during suffering for him. Another Puritan wrote, Lord, please lighten my load or strengthen my back. And then John Newton, one of my favorite ones, which I've seemed so simple, but the more and more I've thought about it and meditated on over the years, it's quite profound. Every providence God sends is necessary. Every providence he does not send is not necessary. It sounds simple, but think of it for a lot. It's much more to it than you might imagine. What do you do? What do you pray for? What do you ask when you're going through suffering? I, I just wrote down a little laundry list, so to speak. Ask for deliverance from my suffering, although be careful what you ask for. Wisdom in making decisions when I'm suffering. Notoriously, we make bad ones. Strength for today during my sufferings. Embracing my weakness so that God's power might be displayed through it. Make me more like Jesus through my suffering. Use the pain for my good to echo Joseph. Show me your glory. Teach me your ways. I mean, there are a myriad of things that we could add to that list. But what do you pray in your deepest difficulties, the saddest sorrows, the most horrible hurts in your life? When you're really wrestling with God, crying out to God, what do you say? Augustine wrote a book back in the 300s called Confessions. In any, he wrote this, the best disposition for praying is that of being desolate, forsaken, Stripped of everything. In other words, when you're suffering and you have nothing, 
He says, it's a great place to be, whether you recognize it or not. So what do I and what do you say in radically difficult times? Spurgeon wrote on it in his book called The Power of Prayer in a Believer's Life. He said, don't pray in your suffering, he called fingertip prayers. And by that, he describes them as this, those dainty runaway knocks at the door of mercy. (laughs) In other words, don't pray little prayers where you knock real quick on God's door asking for something like get me out of this and then run on your way. He said, don't pray like that in your suffering. That's not what God wants you to do. He wants you to consider his mercies on a new way. There's a book, in fact, she's written three of them. And one of them is Walking Through the Fire. Vanitha Risner contracted polio when she was an infant. For years, she was misdiagnosed and they didn't know exactly what it was. And because of it, she had widespread paralysis. She lived in and out of the hospital, mostly in and not out, for 10 years. After each time she would go home as a young person, she'd return to school if she could and have a life full of bullying. Eventually, as she grew up, she became a Christian. She thought things would get better, and for a while they did. She talks in her book and her memoir about carefree college days that she landed her, a dream job in Boston. She got her MBA from Stanford. She had a bright future. Then she met someone at school and got married to them and thought life would be great until it all began to unravel. And as she put in her book, again. She had four miscarriages in a row. Her son died of a misdiagnosis just like she had suffered for years. She was diagnosed after all the miscarriages with post-polio syndrome and thought that she would probably end up being a quadriplegic for the rest of her life. On top of all of that, her husband, in her worst time of pain and sickness, betrayed her and left her to raise their two teenage girls all by herself. She writes that she walked through the fire, and here's what she learned, and I quote, That intimacy with God and suffering, listen to this, can be breathtakingly beautiful. Who talks like that? Who calls the worst types of suffering breathtakingly beautiful? I I would guess if Vanitha was here, she would say, as she read Hebrews 5, 7 through 9, that that passage of Jesus' suffering is breathtakingly beautiful. And his worst suffering And I think this passage depicts depicts Gethsemane, the olive press or the oil press. It's the picture of olives being crushed. So Jesus is in Gethsemane praying, but he's not sweating oil, olive oil. It's blood. See, the idea when you see it in an olive press like Gethsemane, you're supposed to think Jesus is being crushed. The blood is the dripping like oil, olive oil, but for him it's his blood because he's dying from it. He's crushed. And you're looking at Gethsemane and all the gospel passages and here in Hebrews 5, and you think Jesus is being pressed for his life. What do you do? What would you do? What would you do if everything that you depended on, the one you depended on the most in your life, was turning his back on you? 
Well, all of this is about the context in Hebrews is that Jesus is better. The new covenant is better than all the old covenant stuff. So if you are a Jewish person, don't go back to try to live in the Old Testament because it's failed. It's, it's completed in Christ. And Jesus is better. And one of the things that make him better is that he's a better high priest. And tonight we're not into getting into how the Melchizedek order of priesthood is better than the Aaronic one and all that. But I want you to know that it's important for us to realize this, that in your suffering, can I say umbrella-wise tonight? The most important thing you have to realize is that Jesus is better than everything and not just the things listed in Hebrews. And if you don't believe that, if you don't think he's better than anything that you feel, lose, or suffer in your life, it's going to be a struggle far more than you understand. Hebrews is here to tell us, and the example of Jesus is here to communicate to us that the greatest thing that you could have is to know that Jesus is the greatest, that he is supremely the one that should be filling up your heart. In the text, as the high priest, the question beginning in chapter 5 is, does he pass the test? Is he qualified to be our high priest? And the answer, of course, is yes. Two things that make it so. If you look at our text, it says in verse 7, we read in verse, the first phrase, in the days of his flesh. And the first thing he wants you to know is that he's human. God became a man. So Jesus has humanity. He understands us. I don't know if you've seen those commercials, like him or not. Sometimes I do and sometimes I don't. But he gets us, the little Jesus ones. Have you seen that on TV? Sometimes I go, oh, that's really good. Sometimes I'm like, eh, you know. But the idea is he gets us. He does. You know why? Because he became like us. Hebrews 2.18, he was made like us in every way so that he could be a high priest for us and intercede in our behalf. But he wasn't just a man because that, to be the Melchizedek one, you'd have to be more. He was also fully God because in verse 5 it says, he was appointed by him who said to him, see, underline it, you are my son. So Jesus was a priest like no other priest, fully man, fully God. He knows, listen, he knows what it's like as a person to suffer. He knows like, what it's like to be tempted in a temptation to sin in ways you never will. See, you're a sinner. So there are times, more often than we like to admit, you give in to your temptations. He never did. Did you know he had temptations that never quit? Because he never gave in to any of them. And he had it for a lifetime in the days of his flesh. He had a life filled with all the things that defeat us. But he was never defeated. By, see, he gets us. But in Jesus's most difficult tests, he had deep dependence on God. That's why he prayed in Gethsemane. Let me flip it over. And that's why the disciples, perhaps like us, were asleep. They didn't have a deep dependence at best, although they at the time would have argued against that, truth, that, that reality, it was shallow. That the greatest time of testing that would be in their life almost as well, they were sleeping. How many of us would be, that'd be true of us? We're sleeping, whether truthfully, literally, or perhaps metaphorically. We're sleeping through our suffering, and we're not getting anywhere. But see, what does deep dependence look like when I pray in my suffering. There are three things in the text and I want to show you each one. The first thing it looks like 
when you pray through suffering is this, worship. Verse 7 says, in the days of his flesh, now get this because it's going to surprise you. It did me. Jesus, and here's the word, offered up. You see it? It's used 20 times in the book of Hebrews. And I read every one of them this week, and it's talking about priests, and they're always making sacrifices, giving gifts, putting animals on the altar. And in the Old Testament, they had to do it all the time, all the time. But Hebrews stresses this, that Jesus made sacrifices, but his were once and for all. And it's the only one that's needed anymore, and it's eternal. And we don't have to go back to the Old Testament system of having your sins forgiven, because Jesus didn't sacrifice something. He sacrificed himself. When he died on the cross, offered up Gethsemane, think of it this way, was Jesus formally and publicly beginning to offer himself up for our sin. He was the priest starting to make intercession for us. And can I tell you, listen, it was a struggle to suffer and the way that he was going to suffer. And predominantly, I do not mean the physical tortures of the cross as bad as they were. See, he's going to give himself for us, even though he himself was the lamb without blemish. Now, when the Bible says he suffered, and he pictures Gethsemane, here's the words that describe his prayers. Look at verse 7. He offered up prayers and supplications. Prayers is the generic word for prayers, and it could just about include anything you do when you pray. Supplications, far more specific. It means to ask for things. We would call them requests. There are five uses of the term in the New Testament. Here's what they are. Ephesians 6, 18, we pray during times of spiritual warfare. So there are spiritual requests. If you be anxious for nothing but by everything with prayer and supplication. So we pray over emotional issues. Don't be anxious. Don't be afraid. We pray instead. We pray, 1 Timothy 2.1, for our presidents and leaders and government. So prayer or supplications, we ask things about socially, about our nation, or about people in authority over us. 1 Timothy 5.5, widows pray day and night financially, that God would supply their needs. And then you come to Jesus, and he's praying personally in Gethsemane. So spiritual, emotionally, social, financial, personal supplications, asking God. Jesus, in his suffering, the first thing he does, which dependence expresses, as a human being, he gets on his knees and prays. Now, in your mind tonight as I'm talking... Think about what you think of, and I've watched a ton of Jesus movies since I've been a little kid. Um, Sometimes they get better, at least cinematography-wise. Content, sometimes not so much. Um, But in the Garden of Gethsemane, everybody's got a different view of what Jesus was doing. I read all four Gospels and what Gethsemane was like as far as the Gospel writers go and the eyewitnesses that were there. Nobody says what Hebrew says. None of them mentioned that he was crying. It's the word dakruan. It's the word, there are numerous words for crying. This is the one that means to sob uncontrollably. It's the one used of Lazarus when he was at Lazarus' tomb and they said that he'd been dead four days and it said Jesus wept. He was sobbing. This is the kind where your shoulder shakes kind of crying. 
And that's the one used here in the Garden of Gethsemane. Have you ever thought, have you ever pictured when you thought of Gethsemane? I mean, when we have, we have him standing by our, or kneeling by a rock. You have Jesus in the latest passion of the Christ where he's agonizing and he's praying and he steps on the serpent metaphorically his head and all this thing. But I've never, ever seen anyone picture Jesus crying in Gethsemane. But the Bible says he did. Loud cries. And it's interesting, the Greek word literally means mighty. Loud is the word mighty. It's the same construction. Luke 23, 23 says, when the crowd gathered before Pilate and the Romans, it says that, and I'll quote it to you, they were urgent with loud voices. That's the word mega. So that's the word for loud volume. That he should be crucified and their voices, it says, prevailed. And the word prevailed is mightily. In other words, they were louder and stronger, and they were really dead serious about it. I mean, that's what Jesus is praying like. I looked up, and I could find only one of the four Gospels in their accounts of Gethsemane where this might fit in with the words that were used. Luke's Gospel said this, that Jesus had been praying and he's going to pray three times. The first, all three times, he says the exact same words. There might have been more, but these are the ones that are recorded. He's always praying about whether it's his will or the Father's will, and he's succumbing to it. He's trying to surrender his life to it. In the middle of it, between number two and number three prayers, it says Jesus is so out of it that he has an angel from heaven appear in the garden to strengthen him. And again, the word strengthen is to make him mighty because his praying and his crying and his blood coming down his head and all of the literal shouting is the word in the garden has made him so weak that he couldn't go on. He had to have heavenly help to survive it. And it says, being in agony agony. Do you, do you now feel what he's feeling? He prayed, listen to this, he prayed more earnestly. That's where I think Hebrews fits in. The third time around, when he thought he had lo- lost all of his strength, an angel comes and gives him more strength. Does he store it up for the future? No, although he'll need it. He prays. I think the third time, in complete tears, Strong, loud voice crying out to God. If the disciples weren't asleep, they probably would have heard him and be afraid. But that's how Jesus struggles in his prayers when he's suffering. You know why? Because he's offering up prayers. He is struggling to worship God supremely. You know why? Because he's having a conflict between two desires, his and God's. He doesn't want to endure the suffering that it'll take to take our hell. He doesn't want to in his humanity. He doesn't want to. But as he struggles, listen to this. He's human. Here's what his prayers are not like. They are not stoic. In other words, they are not emotionless. They are so filled with emotion that if you watched him, you might think it was slightly embarrassing or awkward. He wasn't quiet. At one point, he is shouting. You might almost stay screaming. 
His words were repetitive. He didn't come up with great words over and new things. He kept saying the same thing over and over, all three times. In fact, the Bible goes so far in numerous Gospels to let you know that he did repeat his words. He was exhausted. He had to have heavenly help. He cried, brokenhearted, that God was answering his prayers. Contrast this, it says with this. He prayed to him who was able to save him from death. God had the power, but he wasn't going to use it. He had to suffer through that. If you read the book of Job in very close reading, you'll find a very similar thing that happens with Job. You know the whole story, but what we don't park on is the part I want to park on. Just for a minute. He loses everything. All of his animals, all of his wealth, all of his children. He's got nothing left. He's suffering like he's never thought possible. In fact, Job is the epitome of suffering. In fact, people will say, you're suffering like Job. Can I tell you what he does? He's fighting in his suffering, in his prayer, to worship God supremely. And look what, ha- look what the words are accompanied with Job's worship. Listen to what he says in Job chapter 1. It says that he tore his robe, shaved his head, fell down to the ground, and, and what? And worshiped. Those in our mind in America don't go together. You don't go like this and rip your clothes, right? You don't shave your head and your beard. You don't shave all that off. You don't throw yourself on the ground. You better hope no one's watching, right, in America. And then he says, and he worshiped. What? How is that worship? How is Jesus sweating drops of blood, having to have heavenly help, yelling and crying in tears, And he's worshiping. He's offering up those things as prayers to God. Well, see, in our suffering, we don't have to be afraid to be human when we pray. We don't have to be afraid to feel things. Of course, all of our feelings should be governed by truth. But here's Jesus, and here's what he says to us. When we pray... We need to pray, and we need to feel it, and we need to stay there, and we need to repeat things, and we need to really go after it. Why? Because prayer aligns your will with God's, and you stay, and you fight, and you struggle, and you do what you have to do to worship him supremely so that your will is submitted to his. It is prayer and suffering is a war on our wants. It is a war on our wants. So praying in our suffering is something we do out of deep dependence on God because we need to worship him. We need to let him know that it's not just the things that we love that he gives to us. It's not, as Job said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. We have to tell God in our suffering, I don't worship you just because I've never suffered or you keep it all from me. I worship you because you're God. We need to communicate. That's worship. Secondly, strangely enough again, Prayer through suffering, praying through suffering, you know what? We need worship and we need reverence. Who in the world talks about that in prayer? The writer of Hebrews does. You know why Jesus was heard in Gethsemane and all of that? It wasn't because he cried. It wasn't because he spoke really loud and strong. 
It wasn't because he was sweating great drops of blood. That's not the reason that the Bible gives, although those are great things, that's not the reason why it says he was heard. He offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because he was God. No. Because of his holiness. No. Because of his reverence. Reverence. What in the world is that? Well, it's used two other times in Hebrews. Chapter 11 and verse 7, listen to this. Noah constructed an ark, it says, when God told him to, and he did it with ESV, godly fear. It's the word reverence. 1228 of Hebrews, seeing that we have an unshakable kingdom, let us serve God with reverence reverence. All three uses of the term reverence in Hebrews always have this together. Attitude and action. Reverence we think of, and it is. It's having a fear of God, a holy awe and adoring him. It is that. It's a respect for God and who he is. But it is not just an attitude or a mentality, although that is primary and first. It always concludes with an action. Noah reverenced God, and when he told him to build the ark, and it would take him 120 years, he did it. He didn't understand it. There had been no rain. Why do we need an ark? He did it. See, the attitude and the action went together. We have an unshakable kingdom. You know what you should do when you know that? You know what? That's the attitude. We we reverence God for an unshakable kingdom in a shaky world. So here's what he says. Now, here's how you know you're reverent. Go out and serve God. Do something for the kingdom that's unshakable. It's reverence in action. It pictures priests bowing down before God and then getting up and doing their priestly service in the temple always has action. It has attitude and it has action together. So what do we do when we suffer and we pray through it? Here's what we do. We show reverence. John 11, Jesus is at the tomb of Lazarus and he says in verses 41 and 42, he says, Father, I thank you that you hear me. And then he says this, because I know you always hear me. Always You know what that means? Jesus did everything with reverence. He was always reverent. He always had the right attitude followed by the right action. Listen tonight. When you suffer, beware. My many years in the ministry and helping and counseling people have come to this conclusion that one of the most disobedient times for a lot of believers is when they are suffering They become disobedient. They see themselves as victim. They have a pity party. They feel sorry for themselves, for the aches and pains that they have. And I'm not diminishing in that or being unsympathetic. I'm just stating the truth. They they lose their reverence for God. They don't feel good. They start taking less opportunities to serve others or think of others. And I know sometimes it's impossible depending on what the suffering and pain is. But they, be, they first drop off the action, and then over time, they drop off on the attitude. 
I've seen people who suffer a lot of times relationally in their marriages with their kids, people that die in their lives that they loved, and they stopped coming to church. They stopped being obedient. One of the hardest things to do, this sounds crazy, is to still come to church on a regular basis to the services when you're suffering. It doesn't make sense, does it? But it is. Wouldn't you think that when you're suffering the most, you would think you need God the most? But if it hasn't been true before the suffering, it won't be true during it. Reverence. Noah showed it. And watch the pattern. Noah, told by God, do something to save people. He reverenced and acted, and he saved his family. It's called the ark. Jesus was told something by God to do, save people, and he did it when he died on the cross. That's the pattern. In Hebrews. So when we suffer, God is going to tell us, here's how you should respond to your suffering. Here's what you should do in your suffering. Now you pray about it, reverence him, and keep the attitude and action strong in your life while you're suffering. Far more difficult to do than to say. So when you pray yourself through suffering, you need worship, You need reverence, and lastly, obedience. Verse 8, although he was a son, don't step over that. It's not just to mention the fact that the high priestly act of Jesus was the fact that he was God. Listen to this. He was a son. He had rights. He was the glorified son of God, but he didn't hold on to them. He didn't feel like, oh, this should not be happening. Do you know who I am? I should not suffer like that. Have you ever felt that way when you're going, I should not have to go through a divorce. My kids, after all I've done for them, I shouldn't be treated this way. Can you believe they fired me from that job? The gall of people after the years I put in there. Oh, we get that mentality, that attitude. We begin to think that somehow because of some way we've merited these things and earned them and achieved them on our own, that somehow we should keep them and they should always be good and nothing like that should ever happen to us. Jesus never said, hey, I'm the son of God. I'm not going the suffering route. Although he was the son, it says, look at that. He learned obedience through what he suffered. He did not go from disobedience to obedience. He didn't. That's not what going, learning obedience means. He went from one level of obedience to another. I like to put it in this way. He went from unproven obedience to proven obedience, from untested obedience to tested obedience. His whole life, he was tested. When he was 12 with his parents at the temple, when he was at the beginning of his ministry, when Satan offered him all the kingdoms of the world in Matthew and Luke 4, he was tested. He was tested by the Pharisees. He was tested by all kinds of things. All the things that you and I go through because he was human, he was tested with. But when it came to Gethsemane and Calvary, he had never been tested like that. These were by far the most difficult testings of his life. But what about you? Can I say it? Respectfully, I know it's not identical, but can I say, what about your Gethsemanes and your Calvaries? I know you're not suffering for salvation, so it's not completely parallel. But you know what I mean. The Gethsemanes, the most difficult days of your life, and the days that don't stop with being days, but turn into weeks and months and years. What about your spiritual, relational, emotional, financial, physical 
health issues. See, for Jesus, it didn't, you believe this? It didn't come automatically. He's the son of God, but it says he learned it. He learned it. It's the same word used when you talk of someone who's being discipled. God the Father discipled him and the degrees and the levels of obedience that he had to rise to. It was far different being 12 than it was when it was 33 when he died. He learned over all of those years how to obey God more and more and more as it got harder and harder and harder. And you know what? No matter how hard it got, here's what he always did in his suffering and testing. He prayed. Always. You never find Jesus. Always in the Gospels, he's out there praying. Someone. You know why? Because you can't get through it without deep dependence you can't and the bible says as a result verse 9 and being made perfect not because he was imperfect and became perfect the word perfect means complete see to be the high priest and to intercede for us and to give us the eternal salvation the verse says after this See, he had to be complete, and he couldn't be our complete high priest unless he had suffered and gone through all those testings and passed them. So now he's perfected. He's complete. He's gone through all the tests that were necessary to qualify him as our intercessor, and he has passed all the tests. He was obedient. Now, here's the thing. Because of that, you and I can be saved. See, it's not just his death that saved us. Read Romans 5, 9 and 10. It's his life that saved us. Without a perfect, completed life, he could never have been our high priest to even get to die. But look what it says. He became the source of eternal salvation to who? Oh, same word used of him. To all those who obey him You know what the hardest thing to do when you're suffering is? Still obey. Listen to Jeremy Taylor again. Look what the Puritan said. He goes, Lord, make me all about love, and my love would be obedience. Listen, and my obedience would never be interrupted. You know what he's saying? That no matter how much I suffer, no how much pain, hurt, grief I go through, man, my obedience never stops. Where does he get that? Jesus. You know why he prayed? Because he knew this. He couldn't be obedient and go through what he did without it. Do you believe that? Do you believe that prayer is absolutely essential to you every day, that you'll never be obedient no matter what happens in that 24-hour life that you have that God gives you, that you can't do it unless you pray and that you depend on him and you seek his face? See, Jesus did. That's how you get through your Gethsemanes. That's how you get through your Calvaries. And his obedience produces yours, if you know him. That's why he can say he can give eternal life to all those who obey him. Not because obedience is a work, because we have the obedience of faith. It's generated by faith in Jesus Christ, and it's an outcome of what God has done for you through that faith and repentance of your sins. What marks people who follow the obedient Savior is their own obedience, prayer, helps us to do that in the worst, most difficult circumstances. So I don't know, and I don't want to be the harbinger of bad news. I don't know what 2024 holds. But if it's anything like the last two months in our church, surgeries, funerals, 
hospital visits, many of them. You know when the time to get ready for suffering is? Now. Now. You know where it starts? On your knees. And we need to say, God, I'm going to fight to worship you. I want to win the battle of my wants. Your will be done. Reverence. I want to keep the attitude and the action together, and I don't want to lose any of that. And I want to, God, please give me uninterrupted obedience. That's how Jesus worked through his sufferings and how we can do the same. Let's pray. Father, help us. I don't know to what degree or how long suffering might invade our lives this year. It can take many forms. But Father, what I do know is Jesus has given us the solution because as our high priest, he has interceded on our behalf and has given us eternal salvation so that we too in our suffering can be obedient. And God, I pray you'll help us to see the connection tonight between that and our prayers. I pray for those in our church tonight, and you know all of them, and they are many. To some degree, there are many suffering. Father, I pray that in their suffering, they would seek you first and foremost, and in that, you might be glorified. For it's in your matchless name I pray. Amen. You are dismissed.